Welcome to Quest with Kirk Durston. I'm your host, Sheldon Kotick. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, please tell us why. And now, Quest with Kirk Durston. afternoon Kirk how are you doing? I'm I'm doing well Sheldon how about yourself I'm uh, doing good although uh, I don't know if you can see my lip I've got uh, a little bit of a crack oh yeah um, no I wasn't in a fight except with the weather yeah, no cracked lips and we- in our Canadian weather are pretty common oh, man I hate them uh, yeah uh, how, how are you doing? Are you getting the weather? Oh, we got yet? some bad stuff yesterday. It started off, uh, you know, like with a bit of rain and sleet. And, and of course, there was already a ton of snow on the ground. And then it got colder and colder. So it kind of froze into this ugly kind of semi-icy snow. My driveway, which is 140 yards long, <clears throat> is, well, it's impassable, I think. Sometime later today, I'll have to get out there and deal with that. Apart from that, I'm doing great. Yeah, like my coffee. When, when, nice. When our snow hit here, um, I just have a small snowblower, nice little Honda, but um, I had to take a run <laughs> at it a few times because the snow was so dense that uh, it it was just so hard. It did not oh, want to fly. And so yeah, I have was, uh, was I have a lawn tractor with a snowblower mounted on the front, and it's got chains. Plus, um, I guess it has about hundred pounds of weights on the back. And even then sometimes it'll just spin cause it's just too solid, especially if there's ice in it. So those of you viewers in Florida, um, sometimes we're jealous of you. Not me. Uh, yeah. No, no, you don't. You I like, don't like I like heat. winter. I would get bored. Yeah. Like I have been spent time down further, closer to the equator and I really miss the seasons that we have up here. It's nice, you know, warm weather's nice, but not all the time. That's, that's like. I'd be okay with warm weather about now for about three weeks, uh, just because it's been in yeah. that minus 40 territory. A um, little bit of up, up and down, yeah. on that, but it's been minus 40 since like two weeks before Christmas. We've only had about three days. Of reprieve from okay. that. Okay. Well, so, I, uh, I can, I can know, understand. I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, all right. So a couple of questions for you before we get into the um, discussion that we'll have today. Um, favorite. Uh, so we, we talked about your favorite bird, uh, which uh, brought up uh, a couple uh, questions around that, but um, you like the outdoors. Where's your favorite place to go? Well, that's, I mean, there are so many nice places out there. That's really tough to narrow down, but I would definitely say far from people. That's, that's one of the first criteria. We started uh, going into remote wilderness, my wife and I. Actually, it's my wife that talked me into this way back, like we're talking 30 years ago. And uh, She doesn't like what? people either? She doesn't like people Well, she either? likes people a lot more than I do. I like people. Okay. It's not that I don't okay. like people. It's just that it's nice to get away into the wilderness where there's no people. And so my kids, 
they grew up, I have six of them, by the way, they grew up with, if you ever saw somebody out in the wilderness, that was a disaster. Like you want to go so far out. You don't see anybody for days at a time or a week. So uh, the Northern Canada, um, where there's lakes and trees and stuff. Now, if I was traveling somewhere just for a more like a normal holiday, Newfoundland, everybody needs to go to Newfoundland. It is amazing. I've never been oh, to yeah. Newfoundland. I've been on the, I lived on the west coast of Canada. It's very beautiful, but it's kind of like the same kind of beauty all the time. Newfoundland is just amazing. It's. So what is it about Newfoundland? It's, like, from what I heard, it's Yeah, a there's a lot of rocks there. In the middle of the ocean. There's a lot of differences. Like there's just this gorgeous, the sea, the, the hiking, uh, the people. The people are real down to earth. Very different from West Coast people. Um, you know, it's just, just a lot to say about Newfoundland. Um, yeah, I don't know. Are you able to understand the language? Uh, it's not so bad. I mean, uh, the, word, the it's not as bad as, say, the Highlands of Scotland, for example, where you might really have an issue trying to just figure out what they're saying. But uh, it's, it's not too bad. Okay. All right. And... Um... Uh, one other question is, uh, weirdest food you've eaten? Weirdest food. I've had quite a variety of food, but immediately what comes to mind, what comes to mind is, uh, it's, is dried strips of dried squid that I had in North Korea. Now it's, it's, I don't know how long it takes this stuff to dry, but it certainly starts smelling really bad before it's dried. So I would smell this stuff and it was just heinous. Like I grew up on a farm, eh? And I know what dead cows smell like when they've been sitting there for, let's say a week. And I was smelling something like that, except it was more fishy. And I didn't know what it was for until we went to a, a fancy picnic dinner and they served it. And of course, when you're, you got to be polite, eh? You got to eat everything. So down the hatch with this dried squid and it was hard like leather, but I could still, the fumes later on that night, as I breathed out, the fumes were still coming through my nose. I could still smell that, that smell. So that's probably the, uh, I don't know, it's probably the weirdest. Was it, was the taste okay? Like, did it taste like a venison or more like a uh, rubber? Uh, it just tastes like really dried, dried out fish, um, fishy kind mm -hmm. of, it's, it's, it doesn't really get me excited at all, but uh, apparently it seemed to be quite the snack in North Korea. People like it. Interesting. All right. Um, okay, so talk to me a little bit about in the in the description of the uh, stream. We've got some links to a interview that you did about an article yeah. that you did. So first, why don't we start with sure. the article? Uh, this thing is popular. Yeah. Um, if you figured out why, and well, first, what's the article about? And then, sure. Um, why yeah. Is it so, so um, uh, in the er, in the mid nineteen thirties, a book was published by a social anthropologist who taught at Oxford and, and I think also at Cambridge um, by J. D. Unwin, and it was called Sex and Culture. And uh, I had heard about this book, and it said it, it was some pretty interesting stuff. And of course. When you hear about things, you can never trust that it's true anymore nowadays. You got to really go read it for yourself. So I read it for myself. It's, 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 
it's probably the he's as he's put it about 10 volumes condensed into one and uh he studied the relationship between how well a culture flourishes in terms of architecture literature music agriculture and so forth the relationship between the flourishing of a culture and what sort of sexual restraints or lack thereof they had it was 86 total and what he discovered was really quite incredible and and basically there is the the more the <clears throat> the more constrained the more con constrained you have well, the more sexuality is constrained to be practiced within marriage and even different kinds of marriage like different cultures have different ideas of what that is but the more it's just constrained within that the more the culture flourishes and the less it's constrained the more it goes downhill but he found there was a turning point a tipping point and i was really surprised at what that tipping point was the tipping point is when sexual relations between people is fine outside of marriage, like for young people, for example. He called it prenuptial uh, intimacy. And when, pre well, I was shocked at that because when people say if, if sex goes downhill, if you get too wild in that area, it's cultural collapse. And so immediately in my head, I'm thinking, well, it's got to be, what is that? It's got to be really bad. Like we're talking pedophilia, sex with animals. What are we talking about here? So I was shocked to learn that it was that because our culture crossed that tipping point probably that started in the mid 1960s there the you know when the actual tipping point and when becomes socially acceptable like across the board that you can't pin that down to a day or even a particular year but you can pin it down to within a 10 year period and for us that really somewhere between mid 1970s to mid 1980s it just became normal for let's say high school students to be sexually active so what happens here now kirk kirk is this unwin guy a uh, a priest yeah. or who who is this unwin guy is he <laughs> like it sounds like he might be obviously a christian because he's he's saying that premarital or prenuptial yeah. sex is the downfall of society uh tell me about yeah this so i was wondering like where's this guy coming from he, he was extremely pedantic his, his academics is impeccable, in fact, so impeccable that there's a professor at Princeton by the name of Robert P. George who actually teaches Unwin, and he says no one since Unwin's time has matched Unwin in the degree of thoroughness he did in his study of these 86 civilizations. Unwin is still the leader, but what was his bias? Uh, it was pretty, as I read the book, I would say that if anything, like the way he talked about say christianity for example was not at all there was nothing positive about it nothing in fact some of the ways he referred to it i don't think he ever refers to jesus uh, by name um if anything i i I'd sensed he was either an agnostic or an atheist but let's just say an agnostic you certainly couldn't tell and if anything he was he didn't he, there was no positive things about christianity nothing nothing to suggest a bias there and if anything the way he referred to it no christian would refer to it that way at least that was my my thing my uh but uh the, the, what made my article explode on the internet at least relatively speaking compared to my other articles i'd say i must have close to half a million views on it now was that robert p george actually gave my article the thumbs up and then things went crazy. You know, I was getting like tens of thousands of views per day for a little while. 
And uh, then I got requests to do interviews or more articles. It's been translated to other languages. But uh, this is where that Irish journalist, uh, Ben Scallon of Grip Media, got a hold of me and he wanted to have an interview on this. But, but there's one thing I should point out here. Anybody can write stuff about culture and what's going to happen. The, the, the key thing is, is it valid? Is it, does it actually happen? And so what he found is that there's three markers. There's When the tipping point is crossed, three things happen within the next generation or so. Three remarkable changes in the culture. Number one, the culture goes from believing in some sort of a God that presides over nature and stuff. We, in our culture, we would call that theism or Christianity is an example. Islam is another example. Judaism is another. Uh, and then some of the famous cultures in the past that achieved very high levels were Hellenistic Greece and the uh, the Romans at a particular point. So they all had their deities in charge of stuff. When the tipping point is crossed, belief in some sort of uh, ultimate deities that or deities that can, would watch over nature and nature has to be... That just goes, that that collapses. And we are seeing that in our culture where belief in the existence of God has just plummeted. Number two is that uh, rational thinking goes out the window. And that has happened big time in our culture, like uh, logical, rational thinking. In fact, in some quarters, if rational thinking and logic is uh, doesn't affirm what you want to believe, it's even labeled as racist and bigoted. Uh, logic and rational thinking on some act quite commonly i've heard that within academic circles and finally the last one was uh lifetime monogamous uh marriage and now as i said it's called different things in different cultures but these lifetime monogamous uh relationships that we in our culture call marriage that disintegrates into serial monogamy and then eventually just basically polyamory and again our culture it has collapsed, not collapsed, has gone down the road in a remarkable way. These are the three pre-indicators that the tipping point has been crossed. These three things have happened. And then he found that every culture, no exception, collapses within 100 years once the tipping point is crossed. And those are the three markers that ensure that, yes, it's happened. And it's irreversible. So that was what we talked about. Okay, so so before I ask some follow-up questions here, um, those of you who are watching, feel free to engage in the chat. We're watching it. Uh, Silas, yes, we did talk about snow. I, uh, and that will be a common occurrence for probably the next six months six, or so here. Not six. Um, well, maybe not, but six. But we're in trouble like if it's six. At least four. Um, and then, um, yeah, so engage in the chat. Uh, feel free. Uh, go to kirkdurston.com. Uh, you can engage there uh, in the comments on the article if you want. Um, we do follow all of that stuff. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and if you can, like the video. Uh, more people will see it that way. And don't forget to subscribe and hit the bell to be notified in the future of new videos and live streams that we're doing. Um, okay, so societies on the way mm -hmm. to collapsing what does that look like like tell tell me about the romans and the greeks when their society collapsed what did that look like well um it's it's basically one of two things major categories and Unwin goes into this in a lot more detail one is is that it could be taken over by another culture that is more he would call it vigorous 
that's more highly disciplined, um, has a higher moral standard when it comes to sexuality. So there's this general uh, that we call that an invasion, a conquering, so to speak. Or it can like, um, for example, today, there are some cultures in the world today that are substantially uh, more strict, more disciplined than North American culture. And uh, so we can look forward to within 100 years of possibly being taken over by a more disciplined culture that has higher sexual standards than what we have today. Now, I know that sexual morality and sexual constraints is going downhill all across the world right now. I just read an article. For example, I, I thought China was, was more, um, and, and they still do have more constraints than we do, but even that, there's been a major turnaround or change beginning to happen within the last number of years in China. So who knows where it's going. Now, that's one way it can go, invasion, or it's just a total collapse of the infrastructure. Everything goes south. For example, in our civilization, uh, the work ethic is going seriously downhill. People feel more entitled to get more for less work. And uh, that only works for so long until you can't maintain your, your food supply systems, your energy supply systems. Uh, they start breaking down. There's not enough people around to fix them anymore. And some, sometimes that can go downhill real fast. And mental health. Mental health is a major indicator that we're well on our way. And so you would see just in general uh, a serious uptick in people who have mental health challenges. And that's exactly what we're seeing, seeing again today. So, um, and I think Mary Eberstadt in her book, Primal Scream, kind of lays this out too. She found, and it's a very well-researched book. I would highly recommend it, Primal Scream. Uh, very well referenced. So, uh, what she found is that the sexual revolution we had in the 60s, 70s, and 80s has led to a profound alien or a lack of identity within people because it immediately affected marriages. And then that's the context within children are raised. And she found that mental health is directly proportional to our identity. And our identity is highly contingent on having a circle of siblings cousins, aunts, and uncles that we we identify with. We feel we're part of that clan, so to speak. And that clan, so to speak, has been decimated in our culture today. And when that's decimated, one's personal identity is, is pretty much annihilated. And when that happens, the mental health challenges just explode in our culture. And when that happens, again, as I said, the work ethic goes downhill, uh, hope goes downhill, and it becomes more of a survival of the fittest. And that's not a good situation for a culture to be in. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm not going to play the whole uh, interview. Uh, there's a link in the description as well. The um, link to your articles in the description of the video as well. Uh, but I do want to play a clip because uh, the, the article and the, discussion you had was uh, really around the idea of uh, uh, sexual nature, um, uh, just that downgrade in society a bit. But there was a statement that you made, and uh, the interviewer actually started the conversation around this. And I'd love to talk about this a little bit more. Um, title of our uh, live stream is Oh, the Humanity. So let's talk about uh, humanity a little bit. So let me put this up. 
we will play it. In a weird way, the advocates for the sexual revolution, they're far more anti-human than those who are opposed to it. That it, the, the narrative, or I suppose the, the mantra of the whole movement is, well, people should just do what's natural to them. And what I say is, well, yeah, we should do what's natural to us, but what is our nature? We're human beings. We're not dogs. We're not animals. You know, we're, we shouldn't just run around having sex with everything that moves. We develop these systems as a society for a reason over thousands and thousands of years because they work. And we should try to uphold that and maintain it to the best of our ability. Yeah. In fact, as you spoke there, it reminded me of, um, of a kind of like a, an idea that I've had or just basically a way of describing our culture today. What the sexual revolution has been fighting for is the freedom to behave like animals where there are no constraints. And I would have to say that the sexual revolution is leading to the dehumanization of humanity or in another way of put it, it's leading to the animalization of humanity. Okay. What is humanity? <laughs> what is the difference oh. between humans and yeah. animals? Well, I mean, some would argue that there is no difference. Um, but I think even those who argue that there is no difference still feel a little bit queasy at the thought of us just behaving like animals. Now, they would say, well, animals behave quite nicely. And I think if they say that, they're just not very much, they don't have a, they don't know animals very well because they 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 don't have a black lab puppy. I can tell you that. <laughs> they, well, the the they, for example, I, I I grew up on a cattle farm, and when you put a new cow into the herd, everybody thinks cows are just like peaceable animals, and everything's nice and they're gentle. No, you put a new a strange cow into a herd, and they have a pecking order that herd, but a strange cow challenges that pecking order, and so immediately all sorts of fights break out with the higher ranking cattle to see who's going to dominate. So domination, becoming the dominant um, and power is very, very much part of the animal world. Amongst dogs, for example, with the alpha male, you have alpha cows and so on and so forth. There's the boss. But what is humanity? Let's get back to that. Um, so I think people intuitively think they're not just a bag of meat. Like we're not just a body. Uh, but strictly speaking, if you take a materialistic worldview here, you are just a body. That's all you are, is a body, meat, bone, tissue, that's it. And uh, so if you are just a body, it would make no sense really to make up rules that sort of inhibit your pleasure and enjoyment, on the face of it at least. So, but if we're not just bodies i think even even a, a materialist would say well we we tend to have social groups and how do you get along best in social groups and then you start to see well maybe we actually need a few at least unwritten rules to get along together but from a christian perspective god says we are there's more to us than a body we're created in the image and likeness of the trinity the triune god that there's something more to us and people discuss what that might be. Some would say we have a body, soul, and spirit. Others say, well, we just have a body and a soul. Uh, either way, there's something non-physical about us humans that distinguishes us from the animals in the sense that we are, we live within a body, we dwell within a body, 
but the we or the us or the me is is something different from the body and, and what i would say is that the bible often refers to the body as a as a garment or a house or a tent or a vessel it, it seems to refer to the body as something within which we live so who is the we and that gets down to what does it mean to be human because it suggests that i dwell within a body and this body is mine and i find it interesting that our culture seems to have intuitively this idea when they say it's my body well who is the one who possesses that body what is it about you that says you this is your body is there something more to the you and so uh, what it means to be human starts to point towards that we are i would suggest a living eternal soul that dwells in the physical world within a body and this is where sexual morality comes in in the sense that our body has things it wants to do for example somebody cuts you off in traffic what do you feel like doing well i don't know one of the things you feel like doing is reacting in a very unpleasant manner towards that person and maybe even physical violence sometimes like we all have these these bodily urges that need to be controlled and that includes our sexual urges our sexuality sexuality is a very good thing within marriage between a man and a woman it, it bonds us together in that embassy but it it must occur within a larger context there outside of that then it's getting a we're letting our sexuality control us letting our body control us rather than we keep our body under control and people think that's absurd but in so many other ways it's totally expected we don't just don't react and with a a right hook to the jaw if somebody says something we disagree with we're expected to control our our bodily instincts the instincts are good they just need to be harnessed and controlled and this is what i think happens in um a part of what it means to be human is that we just can't let our bodies rule over us we must rule our bodies and discipline them and i mean i don't eat donuts 24 hours a day even though i'd really like to simply because i have to control i have to manage my body so to speak now how will do animals do that how do animals i don't know if they uh, like i know that say for example i like dogs i've grown up with dogs all my life i've uh i'm familiar with wolves and coyotes and they have their pecking order and they have their alpha male and the other males and this not just for dogs it's for like elk deer uh even cattle uh if you have two or three bulls in a herd some of those bulls may not get to breed so they're out of luck and so there's a different way in nature is that the only the most powerful and dominant get to pass their genes on and get to have the females for example well we don't take kindly to that in our culture that only the most powerful and dominant get to have uh partners that's that's not a that's not normally acceptable so animals have a different way of handling things and it's the the the, the most powerful the most dominant will get to uh, breed and they'll breed with as many as they can so they pass their genes on and uh, we have an example in humanity like that genghis khan more men carry the genghis khan's y chromosome today than any other male we, we're aware of in history 
So how did he get be so successful from a Darwinian perspective? Basically by dominating, killing the men and taking their women. Now, do we really want to behave that way? I don't think so. And uh, where where's his... Uh, like, I, I know the, the Mongol um, dynasty, uh, it was around mm-hmm. for a while, but not mm-hmm. that long. Was that one of the... Uh, societies that was researched for that uh, boy there were i i cannot recall if that's included in there or not because it's it's it, it, there's 86 of them and i can't say for sure but i would say the from what i know about the mongol society i've, I've had an interest in it and the interest in genghis khan but uh, when you have you you can have a successful society if um, uh, what Unwin does is he says there are societies where a man can have multiple wives, but as long as there's constraints such that those wives are only having relations within that one man, then that'll flourish to a given extent. It's not the ideal situation. And I think in North America, we would agree that's not the ideal situation. Uh, the best situation was monogamous So. I can't say for sure whether he looked at the the Mongols. I'd have to compile that list, and I didn't do it. There were just um, it just wasn't central. I do have a summary of that book on my website. It's a twenty six page quote summary that you can click on in addition to that link there, where you can get. But I focused only on what were his findings and uh, what are the implications for us. All right. Well, we got a couple minutes left here. Um... Is there anything, uh, I, I know when we had our uh, discussion earlier about this interview, you had mentioned, uh, and this is totally a rabbit trail, but you had mentioned that uh, you couldn't see his face. <laughs> and I, I thought that was an interesting uh, conversation that we had because uh, especially today, we're often wearing masks. Uh, what is the what was it like having this interview online where you couldn't see his face? Yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting because, um, the, there was a bit of a rush to get this set up because he was, he had got tied up in traffic and so forth. So consequently, when they set up the camera so that I could see him, I could only see him from the neck down. And I found that, you know, at first I didn't think about, think anything of it. Okay. We're ready. Yes. Time to roll. But I found it awkward to do uh, having a discussion with someone when you can only see them from the neck down. So I had to judge how am I coming across here? Because once it's rolling, it's it's a little late to start getting the technicians in there to re- refocus the camera. I had to look at the left hand. That's a big. Uh, I looked at his left hand and tried to figure it out. Now I I mentioned this to him afterwards, and the interview seemed to go well. Anyways, I think it would be better if I could see a person's face. But the interesting thing is, is how much we 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 interact using the eyes, facial expressions, and so forth. That's why if I'm going into a serious discussion with someone, I much prefer to do it in real life, where we can be over coffee, or if that's not possible, do it on a on a video conference thing where I can see how they're responding. If they want to say something, if I don't, what I'm saying doesn't make sense, you know. And, and I did notice that in this interview, he was giving you a lot of softball questions. You were, you were very similar, (laughs) 
uh, viewpoints on a lot of it. So it wasn't a debate no. in any way. Um, can you, can you, have you ever had a debate where you couldn't see the other person? And what was that? Oh, like? well, a ton of online, you know, discussions on social media where people say this and then you say this. And I find that it's just a lot harder to accomplish anything. And even, even people misunderstanding what I said, like they said, oh, is that rude or is it not rude, for example? You can say the same thing with a face and, and they, it comes across totally different than if the face is not there. So, yeah, I've had a ton of online. Now, in real life, I've had a lot of formal debates with, with different, on different topics like the existence of God and even within um, with Islamic, um, for, for example, with a, several different imams on who is Jesus Christ. But those are much more collegial because you can see each other. When you can't see a person's face, then you really have to. Uh... So, I mean, the interview went great simply because, as you said, it went, uh, there was a lot of agreement by the interviewer. And I didn't know that ahead of time. I knew that he's he's on the conservative side of things. I knew that. So, um, but it is, it is tough when you. And it, it, it reminds me a lot of Twitter because a lot of the cancellations and different things that we've seen have been, um, in, in fact, there's two recently, a uh, guy in Georgetown uh, or uh, Georgetown University made a comment on Twitter about the Supreme Court uh, thing that's going on in the States right now. Uh, he's in the process of getting counsel. It was just bad wording. But because you're limited to not only just characters, but tone, you don't hear yeah. tone. Um you end up in, in a lot of extreme viewpoints and, and stuff that really aren't that extreme, but because you don't have those other communication um, signals, uh, it's often the worst is taken from what you're uh, saying. In fact, I would say that's an of example best. of the dehumanization of our culture. Animals mm -hmm. don't spend like five minutes explaining something to the other one. They go on very, very short uh, like a, we would call them sound bites. It could be a sound bite. It could just be a look. It could just be a position. And, and that's the way, and, and the other animal reacts. So there's just a short signal sent. Then there's the reaction, either run away, stalemate or attack. You know, that's, and that's the way it's becoming in our society. See, people are, as you, as rational thought collapses, people are expecting that, you, that I get asked questions, like I did a master's in philosophy, for example, in the problem of evil and suffering, and I spent several years on that, and I read tons of books and papers, all the papers extending back for decades. So they say, so explain this. And I have like one minute to do it. And if I can't explain it in one minute, they think I'm totally bogus because the expectation is the culture loses the rational dialogue is that everything should be tweets, sound bites, and you can do it in one sentence. And the other symptom is that they don't have the attention span to go longer than that. I'm generalizing here, of course. There's still a good core of people that love this dialogue and they have a long attention span. But so, and then the reaction, the reaction can be brutal. Like I'm thinking, wow, like why don't you cut some people a little bit of slack, allow them to maybe clarify this or whatever. But no, the, the reaction, particularly from the left end of the spectrum in our culture, 
is can be swift and brutal and deplatform and fire them and whatever. So it's another sign of where we're going. And I'm I'm seeing now with, with even the um, right reaction now, it's well we got to fight in the same the same yeah. way. Otherwise, the left will never understand. And it's and unfortunate. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that you know you just kind of get sucked in. And I, I, I get sucked in sometimes too. I've said things that, oh man, like they're not necessarily horrible things you're going to get deplatformed for, but they're impolite things. They're ungracious things. It's very tempting to when someone just snaps at you, just you know, give them one back. But we can't function that way. We have to, we have to cut each other slack and 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 uh listen to what even in this this covid debate i see i'm listening and i'm I'm watching why is why is all this hate exploding and i think the the problem is is that people don't take the time to understand what's behind the other person you know what they're thinking of (laughs) thanks gabe he says i'm not totally bogus Uh, that's because you got to know him a little bit, Gabe. Um, if you don't know Kirk, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, another term comes up a few times in the video, and the and I know you've used this in the past as well. The term flourishing. Yeah. And um, when I'm when I'm thinking of a society that's starting to go downhill, and depression, and all these things are are coming up the term flourishing becomes a something that would be, it would be a nice to have. Uh, I would love to flourish mm-hmm. in my job. I would love to flourish in life. But when hope is gone and, um, and those things, you, that term flourishing uh, sort of becomes a, <laughs> uh, th- this isn't going to happen for me now. Um, can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, flourishing is an interesting kind of subjective thing almost. But uh, no, he he measured in terms of agriculture, architecture, and music and literature and so forth. But really, when you ask the average person today, you know, they're more they're even more interested in how am I doing personally inside? Like, am I feeling fulfilled? Are things going well with me? Is my mental health right? Just one hundred percent. Uh, am I enjoying life? And um, that seems to be more the core of individual flourishing. So um, I would say it a lot has to do with one's spiritual well-being. Not, I mean, obviously physical is important. F- food, housing, uh, water, you know, am I, have I got protected from the elements? So that's important and flourishing, but that's not the only flourishing there is. I'd say a good chunk of mo- people in North America are are flourishing or, or fine in the area of physical, um, but not so doing so well in the area of spiritual or emotional or mental uh, the, at the level of the soul. And I would say the mind is part of what I would call the soul. So that, I don't know if I'm going, am I going the right direction with this, uh, Sheldon, this, this internal flourishing that's so important? I think so. I wanted to bring it up because people that are going to watch that interview, the the term is going to show up. And so I thought it'd be good to bring it up. And I know even um, uh, Sam Harris has used the term. Uh, Other uh, people have used the term flourishing as a, uh, as sort of a goal or a, a, um, and desire. Yeah. I think it's a desire. uh, Definitely. I I wanted to start the conversation. We might need to uh, 
go into yeah. it in a future video. Certainly well, a desire. But, the question yeah. is, you know, people have different theories on how we can make that happen. And in the 60s, one way to make it happen was just, hey, let's instead of being happy sexually with one person, let's just free up so we can be happy with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But long term, there were consequences that affected, first of all, physical flourishing in terms of diseases that got transmitted on that are now just endemic in our society. But then there was the broken relationships, which affect our mental health and our, and our spiritual flourishing and the lack of you know, identity due to the greatly decimated group we grew up with and so forth. For me, ultimately, I just noticed even back in university that the quality of my enjoyment of life was directly proportional to my relationship with God. If that was going, if I was close with God, it affected every other area, including my relationship with my girlfriend, relationships with other people, even academic performance. But first and foremost was how am I doing? Am I connected with God and, and am I enjoying his presence in my life? And uh, you got a really good video about uh, about that a beautiful mind uh, is something that uh, people, can, yeah. people should go look at as well. Um, which we, again, we can talk about in a future video. Uh, we're running to the end of our, our time here. Is there anything you wanted to share about the interview that people should uh, uh, focus on? Um, is there anything else? Okay, well, yeah, one you? last thing. And it's kind of how we ended the interview too. So when you find out that our culture is collapsing and Unwin's research found that it's, it's irreversible every time, but he also found out that each culture believed that it wouldn't happen to them. And so I'm pretty sure that's going to be the reaction. Well, it's not going to happen to us, despite what we're seeing going on around us. So it can be depressing. But what can we do about this? Well, you know, we could have divine intervention and massive spiritual awakening and so forth. But one thing I can do something about is how am I doing? How am I doing? And I think that's where we can uh, just focus. How am I doing in my relationship with God? And that was the first great command that Jesus gave us. And the second one was to love our neighbors ourselves. So that raises the question, how am I doing in my relationship with other people? And so maybe I can't reverse by myself. I can't save the world, but I can at least take the right steps in my own personal life and the people that I relate with personally. Uh, I want to throw this in. Uh, Gabe just said this. Uh, almost at a time, throwing this in. It's been a correlation with degradation and drug use as well, it yeah. seems, or cultural collapse. We're not the only culture that's ever discovered, uh, you know, drugs. And it, I, I just look at the, the people in my life that have uh, gone into yeah. drug use as being an escape. Oh. Um, it's often, I, I need to escape. Uh, my mental health is not good. Um I'm not, I'm not going to say that all medical. No, uh, there's good, there's good are, med- medical you should, use. Of you should go away from that. But there, there, there are um, people that allow the drugs to control them. And, yeah. And, and, them and the question is why, why, why does think. it become a, a problem in cultures that are collapsing? And I think there again, it's this, that hope disappears, mental health challenges increase and you just need something to help you make it through the day. Like just, you need some happiness and drugs are, are a way of, you know, kind of dulling the pain, providing some sort of 
happiness, so to speak. But it never goes well in terms of the consequences regarding relationships, the work ethic, designing spaceships to explore the planets. You know, it doesn't go well. Awesome. Well, uh, great conversation. Uh, we will see you again next week. Uh, we did change the time. We were doing it Friday mornings. Now we're doing it uh, Thursday uh, around yep. lunchtime um, for the East and Eastern Central time. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, let us know in the comments uh, what you thought about the video. Uh, like us and uh, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, we will see you again next week. Yep. See you later. Bye Kurt. for now.